Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 3. The Place of Seeing. Last time we had an introduction to the ancient Athenian religious festivals to the god Dionysus that were the cradle for the creation of ancient Greek drama. We also had a brief overview of the poets who created the plays that have survived to today and which made them the giants that stride the length of theatrical history. Much of the context is lost now, and we only have very few surviving complete plays, but it's enough to draw a picture of how, when and why the plays were performed, and what they meant to the players and the audience. So now, we're going to look at the setting for the theatrical experience in ancient Athens, the mechanics of presenting a play, and the experience for the audience. We've already heard that the word theatre comes from the Greek theatron, meaning the place of seeing, and there are many other words for theatre and its practice that we are still using today. Just one indication of the influence that Greek drama still holds over the art. Thinking about the theatre space itself, we have the Greek orchestra, the central forward playing space, or ring. The modern word scene comes from the Greek skene, which was the tent or hut and later a stone building behind the orchestra used for mask or costume changes. Proscenium, originally referred to the colonnade supporting the acting area, will dissect the arrangement of the theatre space fully in a moment. The word Odeon has now become a branded word for a cinema theatre, but originally referred to a small covered theatre and podium retains its meaning as a raised platform. And what happens in these spaces? We have drama, meaning the performing of an action derived from the Greek I do. We have tragoidia or tragedy. This is a slightly more problematic origin. Uh, It literally means male goat song. And the generally accepted explanation is that this refers to the goat that was the first prize of the winning poet, or maybe the male goat that was sacrificed during the proceedings. Either way, we can be sure the goat didn't come to a good end. To balance the tragedy, there was comedy, which is derived from the Greek compound word for revel and singing, both of which sometimes have a prologue to introduce the proceedings. And who's on stage? The chorus from the earliest days, and then later the protagonist or first actor in the tragedy, and the antagonist the opposer to the protagonist. And what did you see or experience while watching the plays? There is plenty of hubris, or presumption towards the gods, on display, and the unfolding of tragedy might lead to catharsis, or an emotional purging. We'll unpack the meaning of these two words more in the coming episodes. A few of the less familiar terms are theologian, for the roof space reserved for actors playing the gods, periactoi, three-sided pillars on either side of the stage that could be used or rotated to make scene changes, the echiclema, a wheeled platform used for moving dead bodies on and off stage, the eromia, a crane for lifting the actors playing the gods to the theologian, and of course the deus ex machina, or the god-in-the-basket machine often used for a swift resolution to a play. It's a term that's still occasionally used today in non-theatrical contexts. 
Perhaps the most well-known of the Greek-derived theatrical words is thespian. Thespis was the first playwright to win the contest of the great Dionysia in 534 BCE, and according to Aristotle, the first to have a chorus member, probably himself, step out of the group and speak lines as a solo artist. He's therefore credited with being the first actor. He is said to have led a chorus who toured Greece with a mobile stage from festival to festival until he got to Athens, where he won the prize. By stepping out from the chorus, Thespis makes the orchestra a stage and his performance was acting rather than chanting and dancing. Whatever the truth of exactly what he did, there are a few different versions of the story, it was undoubtedly a big moment in the development of theatre. The Theatre of Dionysus in Athens is located on the south side of the Acropolis. The ruins can be seen today are from the later Roman period rebuilding, but it is the oldest known Greek theatre. Originally built in the 6th century BCE and modified over the subsequent years, it was part of a wider sanctuary area dedicated to Dionysus. Its very original form was probably a flattened area used for religious ceremonies, where the congregation could sit on the raised hillside around. This harks back to the threshing floor area that was probably originally used for the harvest celebrations. The location of this original site was on the north slope of the Acropolis, but was later moved to the south side. The good acoustics of the site were probably recognised from the start and may have been the main driving force for choosing its position. In the 5th century BCE, the area had become the theatre and the flattened area the orchestra. Originally still just a packed earthen area, it was later properly paved and was the area where the chorus played their part, more of them later. Within the orchestra, there was an altar and pedestal for the statue of the god. There was no way to forget that this was a religious festival. The attributes of religion were literally in the heart of the performance. The earliest texts, particularly Prometheus Bound, attributed with some uncertainty to Aeschylus, suggest that there was a large rock positioned to one side of the orchestra, presumably a natural feature, and so included in the plays. At some point this was removed to make more space in the theatre area. Stone seats were set immediately around the orchestra with wooden seats behind. There were gangways between sections of seating called paradoi, with steps to allow access to the higher rows of wooden seats. The paradoi were also used for entrances and exits of the chorus and actors. Already this helps us to see the very dramatic nature of the theatre itself. The steep seating on the hillside allows for a good view of the entrances and exits. So when the messenger announces the arrival of the character from afar, the audience can see him making his way towards the central space for quite a while. The chorus could enter as they chanted their ode and progress slowly towards the orchestra. The text suggests that moves like this were undertaken, but there are no contemporary stage directions to confirm this. So the basic site is more akin to a sports stadium today than a theatre. Now I've stood at the back of the rows of seating of several later Greek and Roman theatres, which retained the same basic design throughout antiquity, and it's very high and very steep, bordering on the vertiginous, but the view and the sound are both excellent. The skene, the area for changing costume and mask, was originally a tent or wooden structure, but was rebuilt in stone at the end of the 5th century BCE. So coming forward from the sloped seating from the, for the audience, we have the flat, level, circular area of the orchestra, 
including the altar and the pedestal, and behind this, the raised area of the skene, with the where the actors could present in front of the central doors and side exits. There's some debate about whether there was a stage in front of the skene for the actors from the earliest times. We have the archaeology to prove a stone stage from later times, but I think there are two good arguments for assuming that there was a wooden stage area prior to this. Firstly, the idea for the stone platform must have come from some previous model, and as there's no evidence for it, it was probably wooden and therefore decayed and lost. The other argument which I find compelling is one of theatrical necessity. The orchestra was occupied by the chorus, and they would have blocked the view of the actors behind them for a good portion of the audience. An actor standing in the central upstage position, elevated to be in clear view of the audience, is such a strong theatrical statement that it seems impossible that the playwrights and producers would have missed the effectiveness of this arrangement. So this is the model to hold in your head while we look at the plays and their presentation. It allowed for the movement of the chorus as a block in the orchestra, but also for the entrance and exits of individual actors once they had escaped from the confines of the chorus. The skene prov provided the roof space for the theologian, used for the portrayal of gods, but also for other action, as we will see in Agamemnon, where the watching sentry waits to see the beacons announcing the victory at Troy. Later additions to the theatre came in 330 BCE. More limestone seats were added, as well as more access paths. It's at this point that the theatre reached its full capacity. Original work on estimating the size of the audience put the, that capacity at about 16,000 people, but I've seen later estimates that put it more like 30,000. This assumes that when something is really popular the entrance no and entrance numbers are not controlled, then a lot of people can squeeze into a space beyond its obvious capacity. Anyone who's experienced the modern outdoor concert can, I think, see some truth in this. I was in central London for the Millennium celebrations and can still remember the squeeze on the embankment as we watched the fireworks. It was the last time, I think, the numbers at the London New Year's events were not controlled. And 30,000 is a significant number. Through the 5th century BCE, Athens fully embraced democracy and the demos, or voting citizenry of Athens, included the, including the outlying regions, numbered about 30,000. To partake in voting, they had to come to Athens in person, and the theatre was one of the few places, maybe the only place, where they could all be present at one time. So you came to Athens to partake in the vote, which you held as a serious obligation, and enjoy the pleasures and religious observances of the festival, including the competition at the theatre. In this context, it's no surprise that we find plays with overtly political messages produced by the leading political figures of the time, working through the voice of the poets. The theatre was surely a place to see and be seen while you were in town, and you left feeling part of the demos, part of the project, and a true citizen of Athens. And the politicians would have been sure to have been seen there too. The later enhancements in the theatre included the addition of 67 front row seats carved from limestone, which were like thrones with carved high backs, and no doubt reserved for VIP guests. Bronze statues of the three great tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, were also added at that time, placed at the east entrance to the theatre. 
So let's look at the chorus in a bit more detail. The orchestra was the space where the chorus would perform their dithyram and their part in the play, offering at different times support for or criticism of the action and the protagonists. They were also used to fill in any action that preceded the opening point of the play. Often they're reminding the audience of where they are in this particular part of the epic and how the action got to this point that is about to be presented. Originally, the chorus was made up of about 50 men, but became gradually reduced over time. It seems inevitable now that, as the prominence of individual actors rose, the importance and use of the chorus declined, but the reason for this may simply be one of finance. Training, costuming and maintaining a chorus of 50 must have been a big expense. Cast reductions and the difficulties of affording big cast plays are problematic in our own time, so it's not difficult to see that the sponsor or organising magistrate of the festival could well have looked out for cost savings and encouraged the poets to find other ways to achieve their artistic aims that did not involve such a large cast. It's also difficult not to surmise that once Thespis had thrust himself forward and others followed suit, there was a demand for the actors themselves for a bigger part in the action. As far as we can judge, about 60% of Agamemnon was sung, danced or chanted. So in the early days of tragedy, the narrative action and actors played a relatively small part. And we know that actors did become the celebrities of their day. As the art developed, some actors became well known for playing particular parts or for appearing in plays by particular poets. They were exempt from military service and permitted safe passage when travelling through battle lines and blockades. As will ever be, the actor's life was an itinerant one, travelling through major cities from festival to festival, but surely circling back to Athens in time for the city Dionysia. Their moral reputation was low, but they still had a connection to the religious, so perhaps they didn't suffer quite as badly as some who came after them, who were considered little better than thieves and prostitutes. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of the chorus. The tragedy form grew out of the religious dithyram performance and although the role of the chorus eventually declined, they are central to the action, mood and presentation of the majority of Greek drama. Sophocles in particular gave the chorus a role in the action where the leader of the chorus interacts verbally and directly with the actors. It's a feature that Aeschylus then copied in later works, but all the poets used the chorus to support and question the actions of the main characters sometimes being the voice of the people, sometimes challenging the audience to consider the dilemma before them. And there are times when the chorus is clearly the, the poet's mouthpiece as they express their own views and philosophy. Aeschylus particularly gets very preachy, getting the chorus to pass judgments on the actions of the main characters quite explicitly. When the chorus is used as the voice of the demos, and some scholars extend this to the chorus being the voice of mankind, they heighten the dignity and strength of the drama by expressing universal approval or disapproval. As with all theatre, movement is central to the art, and the movement of a group of up to 50 people, dressed similarly, incorporating chanting, dance and music, can have a profound effect. We should think of the plays as, an opera, as operatic in style, Opera itself has a form in that it was a 16th century attempt to recreate Greek tragedy and restore the chorus to a place of prominence in performance. The Italian word opera, literally meaning work, 
was coined to express the combination of disciplines of poetry, dance and music to be included in the form, because Greek tragedy was understood to utilise these forms. The extent to which the chorus moved is unclear, but we know that Dithyram performance included some jumping movements, so even in, in its origin, the chorus was not a static, and given space for movement in the orchestra, it's irresistible to think that the producers for the plays would not have used the dramatic impact of coordinated movement of up to 50 people to great effect. The chorus are also frequently used to create a sense of foreboding, with their mournful chant. Their repetitive, mostly unheeded warnings to the protagonists preempt violence and prepare the audience for the climactic act. We shouldn't forget that their language was of a poetic heightened style. All the tragic poets had their own distinctive style, as, perhaps more surprisingly to us, did Aristophanes, the writer of comedy. But verse was commonly used throughout the ancient period. The language was heightened, so the audience were immediately taken out of their current situation and into the realm of myth and legend. But this was not an uncommon experience for them. Verse was used in old lyric poetry and the epics, throughout the bardic tradition, and even philosophical works and his historical narratives were written in verse. The verse was not always rhymed, but even when not, was metred and often intricate. As with all things in the festival, there was a proper expected order to the chorus performance, which the dramatist could then tweak for dramatic effect. Sometimes there was a prologue spoken by a single actor, the Watchman in Agamemnon is a good example of this, which was followed by the entrance song, where the chorus came into view probably marching at a steady pace while chanting. The main choral interludes that occur throughout the play are made up of question and response, followed by a conclusion. At the end of the play, the chorus make their exit, the Exodus, again, presumably, chanting slowly as they leave the theatre. The question and answer odes are called strophe and antistrophe, suggesting that there was some form of movement from left to right within the orchestra while the chorus chanted the question and response. Vase and wall paintings show that performance included music. The flute appears prominently in the evidence we have, along with stringed instruments such as the lyre, drums and pipes, and a percussive instrument like a tambourine. We have no proof of the register and timing of the music, but to assume something like Middle Eastern folk music of today doesn't seem unreasonable. The skene provided the basic backdrop to the action, and central and side doors allowed for entrances and exits. The central or royal doors were reserved for the major characters, with minor characters making their entrance and exits through the side doors. The skene also provided the support for the ropes and pulleys that allowed the gods to arrive and depart in the basket machine. Other stage machinery was the echiclema, a wheeled platform or cart that allowed for bodies to be revealed and removed. It's notable that although the tragedies are full of very violent acts, including the murder of children, eyes being gouged out and poison causing hideous deaths, these acts and the resulting deaths are never acted out on stage. The tales being retold were full of well-known violence, but the Greeks, it seems, didn't have a taste for seeing that re-enacted. This may be purely derived for practical reasons. The actors wore masks, as is already well known. Although not necessarily fragile, they no doubt made sharp and quick movements difficult. And that wasn't all. Costume was a long-sleeved robe, which was belted under the chest. 
Athenians usually wore short sleeves for everyday use, so this was something different and special. The chorus and the mask helped hide the sex of the performer. Remember, only men were allowed to act, and so performed both male and female roles. In addition, thick-soled boots were worn, as well as a tall headdress. The dimensions of these varied, so the more important the character, the taller the boots and the headdress. The actor playing the god could end up being two or three feet taller than the norm, and therefore dominated the other characters on stage, and could be clearly visible as such from the seats at the back. It's easy to imagine that acting out a fight or death in the costume would be extremely difficult, if not impossible. But forming a tableau off stage, and then being wheeled on to lie still for a few minutes while the tragedy is lamented by the chorus, and then wheeled off again, well, that's much easier to achieve with some dignity. We also have to remember that it was not the outcome of the story that was the most important dramatic feature. The audience knew these stories and the outcome. They'd heard them since the cradle, perhaps even recited them themselves to friends and family as entertainment. There was no such thing as a spoiler alert in ancient Greece. No doubt some stories were better known than others, and as the audience included all strata of adult male society above slaves and foreigners, there must have been different degrees of appreciation. The educated aristocrat probably had a better understanding of the import and purpose of the story than the labourer or farmer who simply knew the narrative. But it was how the poet arrived at the ending that mattered. Licence with the narrative of the story was allowed, and those changes would have been noted and the significance registered by at least some of the audience. The geographic positioning of the theatre itself was put to good use by the poets. For the audience, the backdrop behind the skinny was the glistening waters of the Aegean Sea. If they looked around, they could not only see the Acropolis itself, but the sanctuaries and statues to the gods that surrounded it, the complex they were part of in the theatre. References to the sea abound in the texts. In Agamemnon, Clytemnestra says, There is the sea, its caverns who shall drain? It's easy to imagine the broad gesture and turn towards the sea that accompanied the lines. When the gods are referred to as looking down on us, a glance upwards might show that they really were. A statue was the gods' presence to the ancients' way of thinking, so these references in this situation must have been very potent. The sunrise and stars are also referenced, and one has to assume that timing was used here to great effect. The watchman who has the opening lines of Aeschylus' Agamemnon speaks to the ending of night marked by the sighting of the waited-for beacon and then the rising sun. It was specifically noted that Euripides opened his Iphigenia at Aulus an hour before dawn, so an hour early, where his Agamemnon has lines referring to the stars sailing by, and later to that silver light which shows the approach of morn. The mask is probably the most well-known and most problematic feature of Greek drama. We've already seen that masks were a feature of early ritual and as part of the Dionysian rite carried into the theatrical performance. One version of the Thespis story has him daubing his face with white lead paint, surely never a good idea, before stepping out of the chorus. But despite his best efforts, masking remained the order of the day. Masks may have meant that actors, however famous, retained a degree of anonymity, but they have advantages. 
Use of mask meant that the actor could assume several roles in a play. There were never more than three actors performing in a play. So as long as the script allowed for time to change mask and maybe boots and headdress, depending on the role, multiple roles could be taken on. There are no surviving masks from the Greek times, but paintings and other records show that they covered the whole face and were probably made of cork or stiffened linen. They were formed to give a character type that could be seen by large audiences. There have been up to 30 types of mask identified for use in tragedy alone. Six of them depict types of old men and there are eight for young men. The others are slaves, messengers and women among different ethnicities and other types. There is a debate about whether the mask included a megaphone arrangement to improve vocal projection or not. Some scholars believe that the acoustics of the site and the strength of the male voice mean such arrangements were not necessary. But to get the vocal projection assisted or not, the performer would have had to present face-on to the audience. In this position, everybody can hear, but turned left or right, then one section or the other of the audience misses out. So the performance must have been stylized and in no sense realistic. But as has been shown throughout theatrical history from the Greeks onwards to Commedia dell'arte, to Kabuki theatre, to Brecht, Masks can take on a persona beyond their rigid form when used by a skilled actor and be a very powerful tool in the, in the dramatist's box of tricks. So stylized does not imply still, static or boring. The judging at the festival was ensured to be fair by the use of a double-blind selection system. Ten judges were selected by lottery from a long list on the first day of the festival. At the end of the competition, each judge recorded his first, second and third place selection on a tablet and placed them in the urn. Five of the tablets were withdrawn at random and only these scores were used to define the awards. This system was presumably introduced to ensure that it was not feasible to bribe a judge during the rehearsal period or even to, the, or even to any guaranteed effect after the ten judges were selected. So the fact that the system was needed suggests that in an er earlier competitions bribery was a problem. In spite of the system, it's said that bribes were paid, and that a judge could be swayed by the approval or disapproval of the crowd. Plato himself complained that the literary quality of drama had been debased by the desire for popular approval. And why was winning so important? There was an immense amount of kudos, another word derived from Greek, associated with winning. But also, the investment by the producer was huge. Wealthy Athenians could pay their taxes by contributing or fully funding a public work. So, our Mr Big Producer, paying his taxes, honestly of course, could choose to produce a play trilogy at the festival or pay to have a warship built. And not just any warship, but the three-tiered ships that were the state-of-the-art weapons of the day. This is putting a significant part of your defence budget on a par with your arts budget. I think it's worth taking a pause here to reflect on that. And to conclude this episode, here are starting facts that I have not mentioned explicitly. First, Athenians only went to the theatre during the festivals, which for the majority of the Demos probably meant they only went for the intense period of the city Dionysia unless they travelled out of town to the minor festivals. 
I'm guessing that you, like me, enjoy theatre on a much more frequent basis. And the idea of an annual theatre trip, well, it just doesn't bear thinking about. And starting fact number two, the plays were only performed at the festival they were written for and then never again. For most of the Greek period, there was no concept of a revival. This did change in later years, when the popularity of Euripides' plays after his death meant that they were revived, but mostly you had one chance to see and take in these plays and performances. Again, I think it's a very difficult concept for us regular theatre-goers to understand. The experience of visiting the theatre in ancient Athens must have been very special. Not only was theatre steeped in religious significance, but it spoke to the political concerns of the time through the retelling of familiar and significant foundation myths. The audience must have been moved from the solemn to the rowdy, from having their worldview challenged to affirmation of their commonly held faith in democracy and the, de- and the democratic process as the ceremonies and plays unfolded. The nuances of the poetry must have brought both pleasure and sorrow. The drama was at times stirring, even jingoistic, but could also be subtle and thought-provoking. And Dionysus was always there, reminding the audience and us that this is a celebration of life and pleasure and fun. Some scholars agree that this is why the festival became state-sponsored. When festivals moved from towns and villages to the big city, the state saw an opportunity to not only control, to some extent at least, the behaviour of the populace, but to present themselves as the promoter of this great civic event that showed off the success of Athens and the Athenian way of life. But that also meant they could control the message that the festival and the theatre presented. Civic leaders saw theatre as a powerful and dangerous influencer of popular opinion. And this may be the first time that we see this, but it's certainly not the last. Next time, we will look at the work of the earliest of the great tragedians, Aeschylus. His Agamemnon trilogy is one of the greatest works of Greek theatre, but there are other works of note that address some very contemporary and challenging themes in their time. So we'll look at his life and his earlier plays. In his time, Aeschylus was super famous for his work in the theatre, but surprisingly, it wasn't his playwriting that he himself wanted to be remembered for. So I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter on at thoetp. And finally, I'd like to give a shout out to Julia, Chris, Don and Robin, all of whom have given me useful comments in the preparation of these early episodes. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you.